one, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So I went back to North Carolina this week to um, to be with family and then also to speak at the funeral and do the funeral of a family member who passed from cancer this past week. And it's been uh, like this family member has been sick for a long time. It was a 15 year battle with cancer. So it was it was tough. Um, and there and it and it's a complicated there are complicated family situations involved that that I don't I don't need to go into, um, but that like some of it really frustrated me, and so I called Abby, friend of the pod, to kind of mm-hmm. talk through this because like she's great with grief. She also like you know is a pastoral counselor. She knows how to talk through and think through a lot of this stuff. Uh, but she had done a funeral service recently. For friends of hers who were not Christian, like were maybe nominally Christian, but not like really into it, didn't want like, you know, the gospel preached at their funeral. And so um, I I say that as like, we all know what it means when when somebody preaches the gospel. It's they uh, they ask you to convert to Christianity and give your life to Jesus because somebody just died. Right. Um, and so these people didn't want that. And um, Abby's like, you know, I have this service. Like, here's what I did with it, if you would like it. And I was like, great, please, thank you. And so I took that, modified it, which was a real life giver. And that's uh, that's why women clergy should join Young Clergy Women International. Because uh, it's mostly that. It's mostly, hey, I need to do this. Does anybody have a resource? Thanks. <laughs> Um, because it sucks to be a clergy person and, uh, you gotta, you gotta support each other any way you can. Anyway. So I like repurposed the service because this family member was also not particularly religious. We were talking, couldn't even remember if they had been baptized or not. Cause maybe it would have been a believer's baptism. Like maybe they would have been christened, but not sure. And just wasn't affiliated with the church, wasn't connected to a church. Which is how, like, I would have been happy to speak at the funeral regardless. Uh, but that's how I ended up doing the funeral at the funeral home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the service that I did was was really secular. Like, I didn't read scripture. I did, I did preach a sermon, but it was very much about, like, grief and the different ways that we process grief. And then, uh, like everybody said, I did a good job, you know, as happens after funerals. Um, some people were asking uh, the other family members if I uh, was if I was the pastor of a church nearby. <laughs> it's like no. <laughs> if I practice close by, but but so like more than like the funeral moment. And it be, needing to be kind of the secular secular funeral, the thing that I'm reflecting on the most is just how much, how many people out in the world need spiritual care and have no idea where to get it because they're not affiliated with the church. And like j- the amount of pastoral care that I did over the past week was astounding you know like i was i was my family's local holy person to be doing all this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and it it's it's hard like it's hard work that like i don't 
I don't know. I, I don't want to be like, we need more pastors. We need more churches. But like people need this kind of care and it's very hard to provide it, um, especially when people are outside of a structure. And so that's kind of like the first thing that I'm reflecting on with with this funeral. But I wonder if your experience was similar, that like you were doing a lot of pastoral care for people because like you were doing this funeral because there's not another pastor there to do the funeral. Mm -hmm. or is or was your experience completely different i mean my experience was so so like the folks that that i uh, performed the funeral for didn't have any uh, aren't connected to any kind of faith or spiritual whatever you know the only reason i showed up was because of my connection with with ross with with the with my buddy whose whose mom died so I did feel like I had to do caregiving. You know, I, I think that the, I, in my experience with funerals and this one uh, was a little different than some of the other ones I've done, but in many ways is similar. Like in my experience with funerals, funerals are one of the handful of spaces where even secular folks think pastoral people are pretty good at. Yeah. Like they're, they're able to be in the space. Like, death is still very mysterious right and so somebody who trades in mystery is i think uh welcome you know to kind of offer words or or listening or whatever and a lot of the care that i gave the family during the funeral that i was a part of was really just that was 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 showing up and being like it's okay i have words i can say Yes. You, know, you, you don't need to come up with words because I have words I can say. All you have to do is trust me. And and that was an important thing, I think, for the folks that I served where they there just wasn't there just were no words like, you know, what, what do we say in the middle of 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 something as enormous as death? Well, that's part of being a pastor. We, we're, we're given words to say, which is which is good. Like. I think that, that that in and of itself is providing care, I think. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's at least what I noticed with this funeral that I did was, was I mean, I still did more than that. Like I still listened and, you know, provided other, you know, for maybe more formal forms of care, but being able to say words of meaning, you know, and, and say not just nice words, but like say things like, about death or, or to, to declare like one of the things that I like to say in more secular spaces, because I think it's true is uh, that I believe at the center of the universe is a perfect saving love, mm. which I think is just a very secular way of talking about what I think that, you know, is part of the gospel. Right. Uh, and, and I think that words like that provide care not because they're cliches, like I don't think that's a cliche, but but that they're we're able to say something about what for so many people is the end. Like right. okay, it's the end of the story. That's it. And uh, and and the nice thing about when when we when we do a good job as pastors, we're able to say no, the story continues. I can't tell you what that I can't necessarily tell you what that story is, or I can't necessarily, you know, narrate the story for you, but I can tell you that that death is not the end. It doesn't have the final say over life. 
How can I tell you that? Well, I can tell you that because here I am telling it to you. You know, <laughs> I don't need to. In moments like this, I don't think that we need to show credentials. We just need to show care and we need to show, I'm going to say confidence, but I don't mean it as like a con. Like we need to show, I, I think we can show them uh, that that there is uh, something with which they can lean on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that provides, I think that provides a lot of care for people in general and definitely provided care for the folks that I helped that I, that I served in this way. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause the, the funeral you did was for somebody who had died very suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, a little different, right? Like it was my buddy Ross's, my buddy Ross is who I met at college. His mom died and just this, you know, instantly in this really terrible car accident. And, uh, and and so he called me and asked if I could come up and, and I did. Why do you think that he called you? Like um, yeah. that sounds like a weird question, but like if they're not really religious, if they're not really connected anywhere, like why do you think that it that they felt like they needed to have a pastor, a like local holy person around instead of just doing it all themselves? You know, I don't know. I, I think I think it had more to do with Ross, you know, knowing me well and mm-hmm. and the rest of the family. So like Ross has a brother and his dad. And of the three of them, Ross is the most emotionally stable, which is scary. Uh, you know, Ross is great. I, I love Ross dearly. And and there's no but there. Um, Ross is just, you know, he's a, he was a amateur wrestler and an MMA fighter and a philosophy major. Wow. And so, and so he's, you know, he's, he's out there <laughs> and, he, and he does real estate now. Um, and so like, it's, it's one of those things, but like, I think that he reached out to me not really because of the religion thing, but because I think he could trust me to uh, 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 be the one that puts it together. Mm. Right. Like, like we've crossed into territory that nobody in Ross's family really knows what to do with, you know, Mm. like Ross's dad's instinct is to sob in a corner or crack a really inappropriate joke. Ross's brother is almost totally, you know, nonverbal at this point, right? Like he, he can't even look people in the eye because of his grief. And then Ross and Ross, and then you have Ross and Ross is sort of spearheading all of this. But Ross is also like, I don't know what to say to a funeral home. I don't know how long a service should be. I don't know what should be said in a service. Like, I don't know what comes after death. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't even thought about death. You know, I don't know what's going on. And and I think that he contacts me because he trusts me and he knows that that's stuff I do. Like, well, Ethan's thought about death because he has to, you know, or Ethan has, has a professional relationship with this stuff. Um, so I really think for Ross, it was, it was, that is a mixture of friendship and and like recognizing like a professional expertise yeah yeah that, that sounds right that i for for me i know i was told that um this part of the family had had another family member die of 
leukemia well of a like sickness they caught in the hospital while they were being treated for leukemia and the the pastor who did that funeral was just some local baptist pastor who preached at them (laughs) about you know the the gospel and it was it was just horrible and was not was not the person who died was not what the person who died would have wanted at Mm. all but of course they didn't have anything ready you know that's um didn't hadn't talked about planning a service hadn't talked about what they would want all this kind of stuff um and and of course like their parents were just besides themselves with grief and and all this kind of stuff so with this one it was like well they know me they know that i will not do that (laughs) and like at the very least like that's covered which to me speaks to a lot of like the cultural trauma we all have around the church and around Mm -hmm. like what evangelicals have done at death you know Yes. There's a big difference between the like kind of Catholic funerals we see a lot of time on TV on the like when somebody dies and you need to have like a funeral scene. It's always an old white man in a clergy collar saying like Psalm 23. <laughs> or right, something. right. <laughs> and like we're like, that's what happens when you die. You get, you get put in a box. People throw dirt on you. Somebody says that. And like you need that person there for that. And it's either that, which is very um, kind of hands off, and uh, what's the opposite of dangerous? Oh, like really tame, really, really? Uh, banal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's either that, or it is fire and brimstone at somebody's funeral, and people have such an aversion to fire and brimstone, which I think is absolutely accurate. <laughs> that like they're looking for the tame version but there's not a catholic priest around you know and so they're trying to find somebody else to do it uh and it's it it's just weird to be it's like you're a spiritual plumber you know like yeah it's oh crap the a terrible thing has happened let us call the person we know who knows how to fix it um and i didn't i don't think that i had ever really experienced that 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 feeling and like I've done other like I spoke at my aunt's funeral I mean I did I mostly did my aunt's funeral last year um I've done like other events where I've been like the the clergy person that's there without being clergy um but this was the first time that I was like oh you need me to perform a task because you genuinely don't know (laughs) like you genuinely have no ideas no thoughts like we not that not that they were thoughtless just that like that's what grief took from them was the ability to kind of make these decisions because i i had not sat in on a going to a funeral home and making the decisions conversation before like i've i have had relationships with funeral home directors over the funerals that i did when i was a pastor and but that's always been about the service it's not been okay what are what are we doing with the body when do we want to schedule what what do you want on the funeral bulletin what um what urn do the ashes need to go in what what coffin are they going to pick like something that i learned is that if you're doing a viewing and then a cremation is that you can like rent a casket and they put in a lining and you purchase the lining and then this person gets taken out of the casket and cremated in the lining or you can purchase a casket and then you don't have to move them and that is it is 
it's a weird thought. <laughs> like these yeah. are, there's just like weird pieces of information that I have just not picked up from having like sat there and been like, okay, do you want flowers or do you want donations? Uh, do you, do you need to inter this, inter this person? If you're interring them, where is it going to be at? Do you want us to contact the cemetery? Or are you going to contact the cemetery? <laughs> Does that cemetery require a vault? Like you have to consider like the local ordinances. And then, like, the death certificates and, like, how many copies of a death certificate and just yeah, that, like, the practical um, funeral package kind of side of things I had never sat in on before. And it was really something, like, very precious to be with family going through, like, those decisions all the way through the service. Because when I heard that this family member had passed, like, I went down that day to stay with family. And so I was there through all those big conversations there through the funeral. I didn't stay for the interment because we had plans next week. And so, um, and they weren't going to be able to get in over the weekend because the weekend was too busy. Um, which uh, it's so, it's so weird to talk about uh, deaths and like how there's like a, a busy season of death. Like they talk about deer season with like rental cars, you know, like there's right. a season in the year where there's more rental cars out because there's more deer out and more people hit deer. And that's what this kind of felt like. It's like, this is the season after Christmas. Like people hang on past the holidays and then they let go and there's just the funeral homes just hopping right now. <laughs> right. And it's, I don't know, like there's, there's a lot of banality to all of this. And then there's a lot of like intensely important moments with it. Yeah. And yeah. And I, and like within my job as a pastor, I was prepared for all that, right? Like I have the robe, I have the collar. It is my job to know these things. I'm happy to be there. Um, but then walking that line, doing this with somebody that I knew, like, wasn't amazingly close to, but not like with my aunt's funeral, but like doing it for a family member who like, I know this person, I love the people who are grieving right now, and having to like set aside, really set aside my own emotions and my complicated grief around this in order to like be there for other people in this like professional capacity. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm still trying to process it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot to that. I really like what you said about spiritual plumbers. Mm. You know me, I, I always like thinking about our job like that. Like, but, but I think that, that you kind of invoking that in funerals and in this kind of work is uh, really interesting because kind of, kind of go with me on this for a second. It's a little weird, okay. but like, you know, the, uh, it, it is really similar uh, to plumbing <laughs> in, in terms of its importance to like, like uh, a, a functioning society that we live in now. Right. Uh, yeah. li like things like, adequate plumbing and and hygiene and stuff is what makes it possible for us to like live in our society yeah. you know this is sort of a weird symbolism thing i'm working with but i think it works right like once we once as we that, that, developing basic hygiene and developing strategies and systems for cleaning you know and things like that it like a, a lot of historians will tell you that that's like the beginning of real civilization 
like like the beginning of the beginning of like societies that advance in these really important moral ways, not just technological ways. Um, and and I'm always and I'm a little struck by your kind of likening us doing funerals to being spiritual plumbers, because I think there's something to that. I think there's something crass and weird about like um, failing to kind of dive deep both as a celebration and as a somber moment in funerals, right? There's something mm. really ho- there's something really horrible about like ah just bury the guy and move on. Yeah. You know, and I might be being very sentimental here, but but I'm okay with that. Like I think that that's that what what an put in those ways like our work or your work and 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 my work as people who conduct funerals and particularly these most recent funerals we're doing the hard in many ways we're doing like the really important kind of concrete work of like making people more human mm. and, and and like doing really deeply human things where we say hey how we honor our dead matters um and it's one of those weird things where uh, it's like how we honor our dead matters and it's sort of hard to point to why it matters it just matters like, like it's what's the concrete reason? Well, I mean, there is no concrete reason except that these are the kind of weird immaterial things that make us more like human beings and make us able to um, have more moral relationships with each other and more caring and careful relationships with one another in a similar way that regular plumbers facilitate that. Yeah. By, by, you know, in, which is weird, right? Like by saying, no, we, we, the reason why plumbing is so important is so that we don't make each other sick and that we can we can uh, 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 trust each other and build off of these like fundamental systems that 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 make us more safe with one another. You know, Donald Glover has this funny stand up in early in 2012 where he he's reflecting on like what life was like prior to all of these things where where it's like, yeah. You know, back in the day, nobody cared if like you were attacked by a by like a robber because everybody goes, well, what do you expect? It's nighttime. That's just the way it is. But he's like, but now as things change, our, our moral capacity changes because we have we lights increase our moral capacity. Hmm. Now we can see. You know, we yeah. can't we're responsible now. We can look into the into a, a lightened darkness, and we can keep watch. Without light, yeah, what do you expect? <laughs> you know, there's nobody can be responsible for it. But I think it's I, it's a weird reflection I'm making, and I understand that. But like I, I, I think it's there. I think that that's I think that's one of the reasons why even secular people grasp for that. Hmm. Right. Like, like they well, because what, what is, what is death really? Well, in a lot of ways, and I, I really think this, Joe, I think death cuts across human existence. Like I think that people, I think that human people live their lives with death at the periphery and they say, well, I can't just assume that at any given moment I will die because then I won't do anything. I, I won't invest in love. I won't invest in projects. I won't. I won't invest in morality because, eh, who cares? I'm a walking bag of 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 blood and shit, and death will come for me. And I think like the more we 
you know, I, I think that the more we, we become more human and more moral, uh, the, the more we, we challenge that and the more we not just, not just avoid death, but like, but like challenge death with our humanness. Cause isn't that what we really do at a funeral? Mm. You know, de- death is in a funeral death uh, prior to the funeral, death has destroyed everything. It really has. Right. I'm thinking about Ross now, like, like prior to, prior to Ross's mom's funeral, Ross is just a motherless man. Mm. That's all he is. He has no mom. His mom's gone. He can't call her. He can't, he can't, you know, bring his grand, his daughter to see her. Like it's done. It's over. But at the funeral, we challenge that finality. Mm. And we say, we say, but is death really final? Like, and people can walk away from that going, no, death is final. I can't control that. But in that hour, we challenge it and we say, but do you remember her? Yeah, I do remember her. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Do you, do you remember, you know, and, and, and in my case, do you know about this perfect saving love? Do you know that, that when we, when we have that perfect saving love in our hearts and in the center of our minds, it's, it's almost as if death can't possibly have the final say because love is always stronger than that. Like, yes, these, these can be read in really sentimental banal ways, but I would argue that in the middle of the funeral, it's not, it's, it's it's an act of resistance. It's an act of challenge, and it's like the most human thing we can do when we sort of deny that. When we say no, what do you expect? It's nighttime. No, we will make lights. Right, right. So that so that we can look out into the darkness, and we don't have. And, and now we're morally responsible for it. What what do you expect? Of course, you got sick. There's shit everywhere. No. We will, we will make plumbers. <laughs> it sounds weird, but I think it's true. Like, I think there's something to that. Yeah. What do you think of that? I apologize for the weirdness of my reflection, but what do you make of that? I Yeah. Like a couple of things jumped out just that, like, they're, <laughs> the way we handle sewage is um, definitely, I like, an innovation, but also, like, people before plumbing did have safe ways of handling sewage people in cities didn't (laughs) but like if you are out in for example the african bush like there are places that you go and that is where the poop goes and so we've like known that there are ways to handle it and i think there's an analogy too with that with christianity is that like people have always had not always had rituals but like we've had rituals around death long before jesus of nazareth was born but like the way that we handle death now is an innovation on that is a new way of doing that, that we have like taken to um, that we have taken and then used as a part of like building the civilization that we have now that really has exploded in the way it's, it's exploded that like there are so many people using indoor plumbing and like, this is the way we handle it. And also like, there are so many people that use Christian rituals and this is how we handle death. And I think like, I think your analogy is good. I also think that it benefits from from complicating it and thinking about other ways that we can think about this stuff. But um, sure. yeah, I I think that I really like the idea that like the purpose of the funeral is to challenge the finalness of death. Um, hmm. 
Because I, I, that was something that, as I was talking with family members in, in preparing for the funeral and in just being around, that was something that we talked about over and over and over again. Like, this person is not is that body is no longer no longer functioning like the person is no longer in that body but that doesn't mean they're gone that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you are now a person without a mother or a sister or a wife or or a sibling or a spouse or whoever you know you are now a person who has this the relationship has changed that this is the language that i borrowed from abby is that like it's transformed. It will never be what it was. And we should grieve over that. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is gone. Right. Mm -hmm. That like death, death takes from us. And I think we have to name that because otherwise we can't grieve, but also death doesn't take everything. Death does not have the final word. And I think, yeah, that's the purpose of a funeral (laughs) is, is to, um, because we are all faced with the reality of death when death comes around but we need to be reminded that that death does not have the final say. And I also like it kind of in that um, even like Christianity aside, like mean it like Christian meaning making systems fully aside, just that like human resilience to death, the, the uh, screw you, we're going to make light, you know? Right. I think that, um, like the endurance of the human spirit is something that is really helpful to invoke, even if you're not invoking anything that's particular to a, a particular religious tradition. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise what are what are you left with? Yeah. Um, I like that. I, I, yeah. It, and then at the same time, like I, the, the ongoing anxiety I have is that like, is that I'm giving people false hope. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to lie to people at a funeral. And so I did a lot in this service of being, uh, of saying that like everybody's grief is, is their own, which is something that I got from, from Abby's version of the service. Uh, and that like, I can't tell you, I can tell you what I think. I can tell you how I understand it and, and what I do in interacting with death because I, I have interacted with death. I have experience with death that maybe you don't have. This is a difference between me now and me in the first funeral I did. The first funeral I did, I was like, these are the words that I have been given to say, you know, like I have never stood in a room and watched someone die before, (laughs) you know, like that. It it was like a real, it's a, it's a world changing experience. I didn't have the time in that moment to really understand that but like that's that's what it is Is i was in a room with a man as he breathed his last breath and that that's something unique and new for me but like now i've had so much more experience with with death with how we handle death with how we think about death um and so like now i do have things to say based out of my experience but i'm not here to tell you the meaning that you need to make out of it because like you said people can walk out of there and think whatever they want to think but to be able to offer them something to think about to kind of think through and to say that death does not have to be the end like that's the purpose of a funeral and that and that is pastoral care it is spiritual care uh and somebody doesn't have to be connected to a church for that to happen but but i also i'm still so caught on people who are not connected to if they don't have a you or a me who do they get 
to do a funeral? What do they do? Like who makes that meaning for them? Like who, who stands in that place and does what we do if you're not connected to a church? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that that's, I mean, the funeral home has to do that then, right? Like, yeah, like it, would, it would be up to them if, if they but, can afford that, if it can be, if it can be something they can do. But then who is training the funeral home? well i i remember hearing i forget who said it it might even have been you every funeral home and every funeral home director is a little bit gnostic because because the whole you know if the body is the the body can't the body is dead we we only deal with dead bodies all the time but that can't just be the end of the story but they also can't talk about resurrection you know right so and so it's I don't know. Like I, I would imagine that the for funeral home folks, like that is part of their education. Is is funer- is is a mortuary school also involves some kind of caregiving or some kind of something. Um, it would have to be. I I don't know. I you know that is a good question. Like if if there are people like us that are not in other people's lives, like who who says the words who makes the meaning who helps them see or 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 who challenges death or you know whatever i don't know i don't know yeah i i know that i every time i do a funeral i think about that book i told you about the um the this incomplete one the mm-hmm. uh, 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 eulogies for for the death of children, you know, and then the collection of, of sermons and uh, in, in funerals like that. And I think about like those theologians and pastors who, you know, were called to make meaning, you know, kind of in those times. And I'm always drawn to like Barton Schleiermacher, who did it for their own kids, and like and like why for them, why they couldn't just pass that along to another pastor. Like why it had to be them, you know. I have to make meaning, and I think about that in my life, and 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 I've thought about it again for like Ross, like, you know, who who does it, and is it important enough? I don't know, I don't know. It's an, it's questions like that, Joe, that make me then go back and doubt my original idea, which is that this is a space there that even secular people still think pastors are important for. Now I'm not always I'm not always so sure because hmm. you got I have to believe that the majority of funerals are not like the ones you and I did. Right, because like the majority of people are not church attenders, you know. Right, like, right. Huh. I this is where I we need to have a, like a a full time hospital chaplain on slash we need to find a funeral funeral home director that we know and trust and like. <laughs> to like talk to us through this because like i i don't know like calling is such a complicated thing that we don't um that that we want to question especially in the context of the ordination process but like i have a real there there's a real twist in my heart for like if i wasn't here what would my family have had to sit through? Like we've all been through terrible funerals. <laughs> we have all listened right. to somebody say some bullshit about the person who died. That was not a death and, and been really frustrated because that person was beloved. I, yeah. Like we've all sat through bad funerals. 
And so like, if I can be this person for other people, like, oh my gosh, please somebody hire me. <laughs> like, sure. let me put my services on the internet. I will sit with your family. I will make sure that like this moment is not a bad moment. Because the first things that you hear, like in that first week after someone's passing, those things that you hear, the things that stick with you, you know? Yep. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious about this now. Well, I'm, Joe, at the end of the day, I'm I'm always grateful when uh, pastors or, or – I mean, you're a pastor. You're just not employed right now as one. Right. But like – when when pastors are able to step into secular spaces or or largely secular spaces like this and and like offer something that's really life-giving mm-hmm. you know that's really at the end of the day i think that's the mark of a good pastor um any any moron can walk into a space that's already primed for for a word like that you know what i mean mm-hmm. I remember going on a mission trip when I was an intern at Chevy Chase and it was through like group missions. So it was really evangelical and, and weird, but like one of the, one of the things we did at worship after the, after one of the days of work was like the adult leaders all had to like say like, like the adult leaders were encouraged to say like really good, positive spiritual things about each one of their youth that we had, that we had in our group. And uh, after a while, uh, all the youth went into my line because, well, I'm the only one with any training to say these things. And and one of the adults who I like, his name is Jeff. One of the adults was like, don't get in my line. I'm not trained to be deep like Ethan is. <laughs> and it's like a funny line. It's It made me laugh. But like, I'm also reminded... But we are. But I'm reminded that yeah, like like when you're when you're prime when when the situation is primed for one of those for a word like that, I think anybody can say it and it'll work. I think what's really difficult is showing up in a space where people genuinely do need a word, but nobody knows the language. You know, nobody mm. nobody knows nobody knows what they need, right? Like nobody has a sense of what needs to be said or what needs to be done. Not really. Uh, But then a pastor is able to enter into that space and like through discernment or through faith or just trusting what's going on, like is able to offer a word or offer an action that, that I think really reaches people, not reaches people with like by proselytizing, because that's also easy, you know. Evangelicals have been giving right. us scripts for for proselytizing for forever, but like actually be a spiritual presence that that carries as an ambassador, you know, God's presence into that space. That is hard um, because it requires not just training and talent, but it requires a ton of submission. And it mm. requires, and it requires a, a a discernment, and and a humility, and and but with all of that, a fearlessness. Like it's 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 why you never read, you know, stories about local evangelical pastor going into a Kroger's like a normal person and bringing Jesus. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a weird thing to say. Of course, you know who reads that, but like. I can't think of one like evangelical pastor who can't show up and make it cre- and make it not creepy. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like, Like if you were to tell an evangelical pastor, go in there, show them Jesus, preach the gospel, reveal the love of God to them, and do your best to not sound like a pastor. Like, like do your best to go in there and don't use the evangelical script. Don't, don't like, you know, talk about justification by faith. Don't do that. Just be Jesus. Cause you know, who didn't go in, you know, to, to villages and towns and situations with a script, Jesus of Nazareth, who just kind of would walk in and just be the presence of God for people and, and, and make such an impact in just his being there that somebody that, that people were forced to say, well, surely there is the presence of God, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, surely there is one who is one with the father, you know, I think it's doable. I just think it's hard. And I think that, that, that is the mark. Like that is the, that is the demonstration of somebody who really can do the job. Yeah you know, do what is asked, right? Because that's really what is, that's really the job. That's really it. Yes, half the job is nonprofit maintenance. Yes. And people should be good at that. That's in my story about Pastor Les at Fisher Creek Salem. He sucks at that, right? Like, like that's what I'm mad about. I'm mad about his inability to, to adequately lead a healthy nonprofit. But like, what what the real travesty like the real tragedy is when pastors simply have to stay in their religious spheres because they don't know how to bring it outside of it mm-hmm. they don't know how to be pastoral for a people who is not already primed for pastors yes yeah you know and but the problem is is like that space is just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller friends it's never gonna yeah. get bigger. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that a lot. And and if we are not preparing ourselves to be outside of the church space, if we are if we don't make that the thing that we're good at, then there's a lot of people who are not going to get the care that they need and some of the most important moments in their lives. And then you just end up with people who are um who are hurt and damaged in new ways or, or in really predictable, predictable ways by death and by loss. And like, that doesn't help anybody, <laughs> you know, right. for all I want to be that like church has no place in society and we can move past this and we can be post-Christian and whatever. No, there just still really is a role for meaning making. And when we don't make meaning out of our grief, when we don't sit down and try to understand how we're going to live without somebody who is central to our lives. If we don't do that work well, then we hurt other people because we've been hurt. You know, like there is a real space for us that like therapists can't fill, you know, (laughs) like therapists can do a lot of work for somebody, but still at the end of the day, they can't enforce a religious belief on anybody. And so like there, there is really a place for being able to like help somebody make meaning and offer something, not for something, but offer something like that. That makes a difference. It does make a difference. It does make a difference. I, uh, you know, I, I think it's really great that, that we both had had opportunities to do this and to like show once again, and I always knew this about you, but to show that like, you really are good at this job. Um, that that once again the reason why you struggled was just because your appointments sucked 
uh, <sighs> which we all which we all knew. Like we said that at the start, we we're like, "Well, your appointment sucks." Like, like you, it's not you, which you know. But like, I, I'm I'm always glad to hear stories of your like, um, being your being a pastor succeeding well. May I tell you one that you don't know? Sure. So I, before you do, let me just say that, like, my appointment would have been a good appointment for somebody else. It was not a good appointment for me. <laughs> sure, sure. Of course, of course. Don't worry, uh, friends of her first appointment who listen to our podcast. You know, <laughs> you're you're a special snowflake that Jesus loves. Ethan. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry. You're a, a normal snowflake that Jesus loves. <laughs> I love want? how your thought process is. How can I make it worse instead of better? <laughs> I know that's that's part of my charm. It's I haven't gotten any real complaints yet. You know that that's really a problem. My mom, you'll say that sometimes. She was like, "Your real problem is is that you're cute and that you weren't beaten enough." And I was like, "I was like, that is a problem, isn't it?" But here I am. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't help it. You can't help that's it now. Okay. Um, uh, so so when you. When when you had your your colon cancer, I had brought it up at the at the church at at, at Gordonsville and Barbersville for prayers, just because they know you. You know they yeah. they, you know you had preached for them several times, and uh, um and so they they'll ask about you. You know, and I oh. announce that everything's all good, but they ask about you. And Andrew, who uh, the uh, uh, at Barbersville, the the adult with palsy at Barbersville. Mm-hmm asked about you this past Sunday. And so he's like, how's Joe? Now remember, Andrew has trouble talking. So like, he's getting it out and, and I'm, I'm listening. I'm like, how he's like, how's Joe? And I'm like, Oh, uh, thanks for asking Andrew last, you know, I just checking in with Joe Her recovery is going well. It's not a hundred percent yet, but you know, we're, we're really grateful that, that she's doing good. And then, and then Andrew said, good, because I miss Joe. Oh, you know, isn't that nice? I was yeah. like, oh, I have to tell Joe that, Angie. That's really nice. And he's she's like, yeah. And so you got a fan. Oh, that makes me. I'm smiling so much. That's that is very good. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, tell him thank you the next time you see him. I definitely will. That'll be tomorrow. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I so one last thing before we kind of close out this conversation, and this yes. maybe this will stay in it, maybe it won't, but um. So I, the person who I did the funeral for died of cancer. I just had cancer. And I feel like this should be really surreal for me. Like, I feel like, because, because I am the success story and she's not, you know, kind of in the, in the way we think about cancer, right? Like in, in theory, this person lost their battle with cancer, but I won my battle with cancer. (laughs) And, and it feels like bragging to stand up there and do a service with my cured cancer and this person's, you know, forever cancer. And I don't feel that way. And like, I'm up there and I'm like, am I the asshole <laughs> for being up here with my cured cancer? Uh, and like, <laughs> no, like, I, I really feel like in this place, everybody was genuinely happy that like my cancer news was so good, even though this other person lost their life because the cancer went to their brain and there was nothing else to do. And I, like, I, I really, 
don't know what to do with this. Like, I feel like I should be a lot more torn and I can't tell if I'm ignoring it or if like, because I have thought so much about cancer, because I feel like everybody has cancer around me right now, that like, I've done the work already of knowing that like having cancer isn't a moral failing. (laughs) And also that you can't control it and you just live with it and work with it as it is. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Does, do you have any reflections on that or any thoughts about that? For me or for the listeners. (laughs) Just like, just like what you said there at the, you know, at the end, like having cancer or not having cancer is not a moral failing. Yeah. Like that's, you know, we, we talk so like you and I in particular, and, and, and this is really how I identify myself too. Like morality is such a key component to like how we see our faith and like how we think about stuff. Because, like, we're Wesleyans, and so we're already primed for that. But, like, we also grew up around theologies that really diminish morality, that really mm. kind of laugh at us for trying to be moral people. Yeah. You know? And and so, like, we really imbibe that. But, like, then our danger then becomes um, framing everything as personal human moral problems. Ooh, yeah. Um, when When – Actually, it's it's just a it's kind of a small sphere that is actually personal human moral issues. Like, it's a sphere. Don't get me wrong; it's a sphere that I think touches all the other spheres, but it's a limited sphere, right? This is my this is my perpetual problem with a lot of like Twitter health advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not everybody, and I'm not I'm not trying to get around personal responsibility, but like the COVID failure in our society is not a personal responsibility failure. Right. It's a failure. It's a systemic failure. It's a failure of leadership and a failure of systems in place or not in place to provide public health care, right? Public health by its definition is not personal moral choice. It's public. It's public. And so I get, uh, occasionally I get frustrated, you know, when, when folks, angrily like nobody's nobody is doing people respond from this from a rightful place of anger when Mm. folks try and say you know if you're not wearing masks you're a bad person Uh, okay i'm not saying that like that's totally bonkers and bananas many people if not everybody should be able to wear good well-fitting masks to protect themselves and others provided they have access to them Right. Which once again makes it a systemic problem, not a personal moral choice problem. But like, I get it. I get where it comes from. But none of that helps me protect myself or my children or my family. Because at the end of the day, it's a systemic problem. I still have to go to work. My family still has, has to do stuff. We still have to go to school. We still have, you know, if, if Andrea wears her mask, but nobody else wears their mask, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I made that personal choice for my daughter. It's irrelevant. You know, like, like it's, it's. Right. It's one of those things. Um, cancer, I think, has the ability to do that for us too. Like we're primed to see getting cancer or as as a product of our moral choices. Mm-hmm. Well, you got cancer. What do you expect? You smoke cigarettes. So oh, you got cancer. What do you expect? You go outside in the sun. Like these are all things that happen. I'm like, yeah, fine. But like even if Joe, you got skin cancer because your skin is a leathery mass because you tan every day, it's still not your fault. Right. Right. 
because it's just it, it's cancer. It, it it's not there's not a one to one ratio of I smoke a cigarette I get lung cancer. That's not what happens. You know it, exactly. it it's it's a uh, random. Uh, and so that's like my main piece of wisdom. It's something you've already said. Like, I think I understand you getting up there and having that "Am I the asshole?" moment. But come on, it's not. Yeah. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that you had cancer any more than it's your fault that your cancer got cured, or is in remission right now. You know. Yeah, like, and I got like, lucky with that. Yeah, exactly. It's luck. It's it's the way it works. It's uh, that's. Joe, it's why I thought your one of the reasons why I thought your your blog post was so brilliant, and and, and was so like 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 touched something that like is so difficult to touch, because because the with with the unresolution and the lack of the lack of telos, you know, and all this stuff. Like mm-hmm. when we encounter the world as 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 too complicated for our stories. Mm. You know, I just find that so, I find that so incredible because it, it, it demands, it demands a worldview that is not, that, that, that does not see the world in terms of final systems, in terms of final, you know, telegraphed like meanings. It demands something open, you know, that, that like maybe open towards something good like i'm not denying that but it demands something open and difficult and 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 dense and complex it it doesn't demand a simple story that we can we can like kind of graft ourselves onto um and i think those like moral questions the like framing the world in terms of personal morality is one of those simple stories that we try to graft our world onto um, yeah, and and it just routinely fails. It the only people who can aff- who the only people who can afford to think in those terms for a long time are people that have the money and the resources to force their world into those terms. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, for the rest of us, sometimes we just get cancer. Yeah. You know, or for the rest of us, eh, you know, sometimes bad things just happen. And, and it was nobody's decision, mm-hmm. you know, I, my sleep apnea got worse. Well, you should have lost weight. Eh, who gives a shit? Like it, it could have been my weight. It could have been no, it could have been nothing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even if it's my, even if the reason why my sleep apnea is worse is because I gained weight. It does not matter because the, uh, it, the, the reality of that choice uh, is so small compared to the consequences of it. Yes. Yeah. And like, that's the exact thing that that's, I'm not gonna say that's the answer to fat phobia, but like that, that's the perennial fat phobic question is like, well, you know, you got to lose weight. Otherwise your blood pressure is going to go up. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And like, sure. Yes. Our bodies, uh, there, there are ways that our bodies react to carrying around weight, but also that doesn't mean you don't deserve care. That doesn't mean that you don't um, that like we don't now need to act, and that doesn't mean that you are worth less because because this has happened, right? Because also there like 
because look at Lizzo, you know, who yeah. like gets up and does these performances and like a, is a fit person, right? Like you were just being that phobic when you say things like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we could just if we could just care for people, <laughs> if we could take away some of the some of the moralizing that we try to do to make ourselves feel like we are better people, uh, the world would be a, a different and better place. Right, right. Yeah, I would say yeah, I agree with all of that. And Joe, you got you are not the bad guy. Right. You know? <laughs> you're, you're definitely not. Oh, my cancer got cured. I'm. I'm such a bad person. Like, no, that's nonsense. It's right. nonsense that like people who grew up in evangelical or evangelical adjacent circles understand, which is even weirder. You know, it's like, <laughs> like it's 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 like the 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 quintessential magical thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're all trained in that, so we all get it. We all get it. It's like when I hear. Um, Oh, I made myself cry the yesterday when I was talking to Elliot. Like, I was getting ready for bed, and Elliot's just was just having a bad day. Like, because he's a person, we all have bad days. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm holding Elliot, and and I said to him, "Hey, I care when you're sad." And oh. and I said that, and and I got really emotional because that is something that's the opposite of what my abusive ex-girlfriend would say to me. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it's something that I still imbibe, right? Like that's, that's I've, I've worked through almost all of the trauma of that, except for that. Like I still hear Julie's voice say to me, nobody cares when you're sad, Ethan, you know? And, and I still, I still hear it. It's, it's all Julie's voice. It's still in my head. I still hear it. And, uh, some, you know, when I'm sad or down or whatever, and, and some, and, and for me to like, say that the opposite to Elliot, like just struck me, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm actually talking to me too, you know, Mm. um, that's magical Mm. thinking, like, right. Like, like that's, that's what makes trauma. So bananas trauma, trauma defies all structures of reason and re and reorients reason around itself (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) right like it's it's working under there's a there's a few immortal laws two plus two equals four and nobody cares when i'm sad (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah yeah I, uh, that, wow. Yeah. You, you just nailed it. I think we have all gotten our our therapy session for the day. (laughs) Yeah. But like, how wonderful is it that like, that being able in caring for somebody else, you can recognize that that care, that you also deserve that care, you know? Yeah. That's the thing that like, that's a, I don't know if that's a wounded healer moment, but like, I feel like that's something that we would talk about in terms of like pastoral care and, and the Henry Nowen's book that like, yeah, you can, you can be broken. You can, you can be hurt because we all are, but like, there are still opportunities for us to heal and for us to, to work out of that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Isn't it frustrating that that book is as good as it is? Yes. It is frustrating. I, I was so mad because in seminary, people would talk about it all the time. And it was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I somehow didn't have to read it in seminary. And mm-hmm. then I, listeners, I listened to it like this past on audiobook in, in this past month. And I'm like, well, now now everything makes sense. I'm upset. 
yeah, yeah. It's, it's upsetting we'll have to do it as a reading club one day yeah that'd be cool that'd be cool i still assign i'm gonna i'm gonna finish up my new syllabus today i still have it like i still assign it for for this round of teaching because i my students responded that well to it mm-hmm not just I think because of the content, like I think a lot of the con- a lot of the content I think is still relevant, but some of it is not. But like they respond to Henry Nowen, yes, they respond yeah. to him. They respond to his tenderness and his like his real sense of you know let's let's care, let's care about our wounds, you mm-hmm. know because we because I'm wounded and so are you, and 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 the worst possible thing we can do with each other is to be gruff. It's the worst mm-hmm. possible thing. We'll just become more and more wounded, and then one day we'll wound other people, and and so and so let's let's treat each other with total tenderness and care, um, and then and then maybe something good will happen. I think like a bunch of eighteen to twenty year olds in James Madison read that and went yes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that cool? You know, <laughs> that just makes me very hopeful. That, that they recognize that. Also that they, because you were talking about how they responded to the, the nuclear man section at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that was a big one. Yeah, and I think that there's something um, really good about that too, in that like, now one recognizes in this, in this description of nuclear man, that like, the meaning making systems of the past have not worked because the world is just different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we are still grappling with a generation later. That like the the way things were just even though there's a lot that stays the same, like fundamentally we could all be blown up at any moment. And that's a new thing to deal with. <laughs> and and we haven't grappled with it fully. And and I like that they that those those college students had that sense enough in their brain to be like, there's something true here. Yeah. 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 Well, Joe, this is really good. It really yeah. is. I'm I'm really, really glad that you and I both had experiences like this recently. Um, and I'm just glad that, that we can be, this is going to sound weird, but because it sounds a little sentimental to me, but like I got into this pastor stuff so that I could help people. Mm. That that's the answer. Like I got into theology because I'm a big old nerd and I love it. And I, and I want to know who God is. It's the only reason I do theology is because I want to know who God is, but like, I got into this pastor stuff because I wanted to help people. And, and so to be able to be outside of religious stuff and help people, you know, that's like, that's the answer. That's why we do this. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that is what I said in my, in my church in Silva, that like I have done more ministry outside of the church than I have inside of the church and church people do not respond well to that. But it's because <laughs> like there were people that I needed to help out there and I was able to, and that was important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like imagining ministry, not as being trapped in places where I cannot help people because I am not the person they need to help them. Uh, but trying to find that place where I am the person who can help, I think is important. And yeah, yeah, to be able to tell stories where we can help. It's a, that's that little light that <laughs> that helps us go on. I think that's good. It is. It is. Well, I'm going to wrap us up. Do it. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini sode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Spanx Reebok and The Dude, and we will see you next time. 
What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.